it would be among the greatest archaeological finds in history. Coming up, Mark Adams follows the leads that keep people searching for the legendary lost city of Atlantis. You know, it's almost like a treasure map. You can't help but start to think about, well, where could this have been? Get in touch with the Celtic history of Wales when you visit Cardiff. Do you know, I wouldn't go to Britain without seeing St. Fagans. It's the Welsh Folk Museum. St. Fagans is 15 minutes from Cardiff Centre. Or see how Bosnia has changed since its war in the 1990s. Sanel March tells us how the youth that he works with in Mostar have learned to put aside the persistent ethnic and religious divisions that still keep their parents apart. It's very mixed. I have all the kids around. I have Roma kids, gypsies, I have Muslims, I have Catholic, I have Eastern Orthodox, and we don't care. We're visiting Mostar and Cardiff and searching for Atlantis in the hour ahead. Come along. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Ever since Plato wrote about it, people have been fascinated by the idea that there's a lost city of Atlantis buried somewhere off the shores of the Old World. Author Mark Adams traveled to Greece, Malta, Morocco, and southern Spain to investigate competing claims for where Atlantis may once have been and to talk to people who are devoting their lives to finding it. He joins us in just a bit to tell us where he thinks it may be waiting to be discovered. And we'll look at what you can find in Mostar in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Its famous arched medieval bridge had to be rebuilt after the war of the 1990s. We'll hear how efforts to bridge their ethnic and religious conflicts are getting traction now with a new generation of Bosnians. We're at 877-333-7425, and our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. Let's start with a look at another city that doesn't make it onto many top ten lists. But, as we're about to find out, there are plenty of reasons that capital of Wales is worth a visit. Welsh tour guide Martin Delandovitz joins us now for a look at the attractions of Cardiff. Martin, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Rick. As a Welshman, what does Cardiff mean to you? Cardiff is the capital. Metropolitan Cardiff has 1.1 million people, and there are only 3 million people in Wales. So if you were to talk about the average Welsh person, I suppose they'd live in Cardiff. It is a cosmopolitan city. In the 19th century, it had the greatest tonnage in the world going through the port of Cardiff, equaling and beating New York. The difference being in New York had many varied cargoes, whereas Cardiff had coal and iron. When I was there, the, the nickname was it was the Silicon Valley of the coal industry. Absolutely. I mean, half of the coal, the quality coal that powered the British Industrial Revolution, yeah. probably came not from Cardiff, but from the valleys around and was That's shipped right. out of Cardiff. Yeah, I mean, Cardiff is on the River Taff. By the way, Rick, I'm sure you know this, Welsh people... To English people are known as Taffies. Huh. Hello, Taff. And Taff is because Cardiff is on the river Taff, Taff in, in oh, Welsh. Okay. 200 years ago, it was only a couple thousand people because there was no big demand That's for right. coal. But then the Industrial Revolution hit. Yes, in the late 1700s. Can you imagine Cardiff down by the sea? Then steep land going towards the north, rivers coming down, cutting deep valleys. And then in the late, late 1700s, iron ore was discovered. And then by 1850, you've got huge comb field, as you said, quality coal. Hmm. And Welsh steam coal basically drove the navies of the world. So you want coal that's efficient because you've got to carry it on the ship. Absolutely. It was an efficient... And Welsh anthracite, don't forget, we're talking in the 19th century, when these huge towns were developing. The population of Wales itself of 1801 was 500,000 people. By 1851, it was 2.5 million, five-fold increase in that time. And those great cities of Britain, London, Liverpool, Birmingham, Manchester, and so on, they all needed coal. Wales was a very industrialized oh. nation in its day because you got yes. the, the mines, basically. Yes. But now it all dropped out. Yes. I understand the last coal shipment was back in the 60s. Mm. 
I was just there recently, and the port of Cardiff, you can feel it was like a massive coal oh. port, but now no more coal shipment, and it's turned into a arcade, a people zone. There's a entertainment. Talk about the barrage that stopped the horrible yeah, well, tides from well, coming it, it, on. Because we're relatively far north, I think we're 54 degrees north. There's a big tidal range. The river mouth of the Taff, which was the port of Cardiff, with empty and fill with the tide, a tidal variation of over 15 feet a day. And so they basically control the tide now. And what was the port buildings and the houses of the people that worked in the port and in the ships, they're now these great things like the Welsh Senate building or the great cultural centre, the Millennium Centre. A lot of pride in that Welsh uh, Senate. Absolutely. That's a big deal for the Welsh it people. Is. And it's a beautiful building, a modern, it's a statement. Yes, it is. And Cardiff was an international port. Do understand that? The Italians, Somalians, big Somali population in Cardiff. Where was Roald Dahl born? You know Roald Dahl, the writer of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? It's Cardiff. Yeah. Cardiff boy. And he used to worship in the Norwegian church down on the bay. Cosmopolitan. It's, it has a lot of culture. It's attractive for local people. Not many tourists go there. Brits go there for sports, don't they? There's a yeah. huge... I mean, the soccer thing is... Yeah, what is, what is called the... Um, it's now called the Principality Sports Stadium. Rugby, in the image we project of ourselves in Wales, by the way, rugby is our game. We have, what do we have, 50,000 registered rugby players. Do you know how many England has? Two million registered rugby players. Rugby players, and that's not even soccer. I mean, there's soccer yeah. on top of that. Oh, yeah, soccer. It'd be twice as many people play soccer as play rugby in Wales, but that's not the image we like to project. No. But that sports stadium is absolutely marvellous. The best in Britain. That, no was the, that was the pride and joy when I toured Cardiff was they just said, oh, our stadium, everybody comes oh, to see the stadium. Of course they do. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Martin Delandovitz, and we're talking about the capital of Wales, where Martin is from. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Erica's on the line from Beaver Creek, Ohio. Hi, Erica. Hi, Rick. How are you? I live in Dayton, Ohio, and we're trying to build up a local film industry. Uh-huh. And I know there's a lot of filming that goes on in Cardiff. I watch a lot of British television. So I just wanted to know what's been the economic impact on Cardiff and Wales in general. And if I were to visit, are there any tours I could take? either location or studio tours. Carnarvon, where I come from in the north, used to be the television centre for Wales. It's not as big as it was now. The big thing that's filmed in Cardiff, which is internationally famous, is Doctor Who, although many other programmes are made there. So you have these studios. Tours, I'm going to be honest with you, visiting the Doctor Who experience, everybody can do that, but how willing people are to let you into their studios. But, you know, I can tell you, having worked in the Welsh TV business, Everybody was very welcoming. You just sort of wandered up. And, and if you have an express interest and express it to people, I'm sure that they'll be very welcoming. Uh, here we have an email from Ed in Niagara Falls in New York. And, and Ed writes, My wife and I went to Cardiff in 2014 during our Britain trip for the sole purpose of visiting the Doctor Who experience. It's a must-see for any fan with all kinds of paraphernalia from the show. I got to pose with Daleks and Weeping Angels and there's a fun video-enhanced amusement feature as well. And when I was there, that was the Doctor yeah. Who experience. It stands bold and tall and inviting right on that former coal harbor. Yeah. So that's the big deal, Erica. Hi, thank you very much. Thanks for very your call. Welcome. Martin Delandovitz is a proud Welshman and a brilliant guide to the stories and sights of Wales. He's introducing us to the highlights of the capital city, Cardiff, right now on Travel with Rick Steves. When you go to this town, of course, we were talking about how it became a real city in the industrial age, but there was Cardiff there a long time before, and the, the center of the town to this day is Cardiff Castle. Mm. 
And there you've got sort of a classic textbook Mott and Bailey sort of situation. Talk about the, the very birth of that sort of fortified town. Well, what happens is the Romans came, the Romans went. And if you look at the walls of medieval Cardiff Castle, you will actually see Roman bits contained within those walls. The Romans came to the edge of Wales, the flat land around Cardiff. Oh, we can do something with this. They built the nearby city of Caerwent, and then they left. And then here come the Normans in 1066, and they do exactly the same, which is why that medieval castle has Roman walls contained. Okay, so the Romans came, and they didn't really develop it much, and they just left. But then, uh, what, a thousand years later, almost, 1066, the Normans invade, and they really had their impact, and you find a Norman keep, and that's a Norman uh, round tower that's on a man-made hill. A man-made hill, a mot is a, a mound of earth. And then they had a little fortified, like a Boonsboro yeah, around right. from that. Yeah. And that was sort of the, the nucleus of this city. And in so many cases, when you see a castle in the middle of a city, it's not a celebration of the local culture. It's a celebration of the people who invaded and fortified their, yeah. uh, their dominance with the That's castle. That's right. I mean, you know, the Normans push into Wales. Wales isn't a united country. They win it bit by bit. And as they move forward, I've said this to you before, Rick, very much as John Wayne was through many years later, as they move west, they build castles. But the Normans don't want the bleak, hilly, damp, wet country. So they love that lowland. They love mm. that stuff. So they build their castle there. Now, here's the weirdo. It was the Marquis of Butte who built Cardiff Docks, the second Marcus of Butte, in the 1820s and 30s. He made Cardiff's fortune. He was a visionary. His son, the third Marquis, rebuilt Cardiff Castle and nearby Castelcourt. And that's the Victorian most, age, right? Exactly. So that in Cardiff Castle, you've got the Roman, you've got the real medieval, then you've got the wonderful romantic period, 19th century. The Marquis of Butte, the second Marcus of Butte, John Crichton Stewart. One of the richest guys in the world. He was the richest guy in the world. The richest guy in the world from Cardiff. And he took the ruins of this castle and turned it into just razzle-dazzle Victorian of the 1800s, over the top. That's the castle we really tour today. It is. And if you think about uh, King Ludwig II in Bavaria... It's the same generation. It's the same generation. And I bet you they corresponded. Martin, it seems anybody traveling in England is going to go to Bath and the Cotswold villages. And what they don't realize is an hour's drive when they get on the motorway from Bath to the Cotswolds, you cross the Severn River and you're into South Wales. Bam. You're in Cardiff. You know, you can see the castle. uh, You can see the wonderful Castle Arcade and, and some of the Victorian remnants of the town when it really was in its heyday. But you can also use Cardiff as a springboard for enjoying some interesting sights in South Wales. Yes. Uh, St. Fagans is a great opportunity. Do you know, I wouldn't go to Britain without seeing St. Fagans. It's the Welsh Folk Museum. Buildings representative of different times and different places in Wales were taken apart and then reassembled. St. Fagans is 15 minutes from Cardiff Centre. Culture be- on a lazy Susan. You've got ah, cottages and churches and schoolhouses Everything. from every part of Wales yes. right there. And they deal with the culture of Wales too, the, the singing, the dancing and so on. It's a fantastic visit, at least half a day, I would go for a day. It's Wonderful. no, it's no one. I would bet every school teacher that does a field trip to Cardiff takes their group to St. Fagan's Open Air Folk Museum yeah. because it really is a walk-through textbook about Welsh traditional culture. I remember there's the line of row houses. Yes, that's right. And every generation, for six generations, one of these. Physically, they're the same, but they're decorated, they're furnished with each one. So you got 1830s, 1860s, 1890s, 1920s, 1950s, 1980s, and you walk right through it, and it's just like a trip through time in Wales. Martin, another interesting site nearby is Carefully Castle. Yes. I said that all these Normans moved in and built these castles. South Wales, for my money, Chepstow Castle. Do you know, you said about Carr. 
all the places we're going to name from now on, you can get to by bus or train uh-huh. from London. Most people flying to London. Right. There are nearly 50 trains an hour going to Cardiff. It's two hours and 10 minutes by train. Huh. And then you get yourself a bus timetable, a train timetable. You can go everywhere. Caerphilly Castle. Chepstow, for my money, is the most complicated wonder. It's the first stone-built castle in Britain, just up the valley. Chepstow, very nice. I visited that yeah, for my beautiful. first time in my last visit. Well worth seeing. Nice town as well. Just up the valley, you've got Tintern Abbey. William Wordsworth. Tintern Abbey. Yes. Was it uh, one of those abbeys that was destroyed by Henry VIII when That's he dissolved right. the monasteries back in what century was that? It's the 1500s. 1500s, yeah. 1500s, yeah. It's dramatic ruins with these delicate yeah. arches lost in the forest in this lush valley, enough to inspire Turner paintings and William Wordsworth poetry. Absolutely. And, you know, you can just enjoy them on the face value, but if you're really heavily into medieval architecture, there is no better place to go. And they're setting in that valley. Oh, Isn't it beautiful? I love it. Martin Delandovitz, it's always so nice to talk to you about your beloved whales. Can you give us a blessing <laughs> or some well wishes in your, in your language? Dabochi. Good unto you. Dabochi. We'll get an insider look at another city with plenty of tales to tell. Most are in Bosnia-Herzegovina. That's in just a bit. But first, author Mark Adams journeyed to three continents to search for the legendary sunken city of Atlantis. He tells us where he thinks it might be. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Where could it be? Some say it's submerged off the Greek island of Santorini. Or maybe Malta. Others think it's in southern Spain or buried by the desert in Morocco. The legend of Atlantis even inspired Donovan to write a catchy song that I liked as a kid. Hail Atlantis, way down below the ocean. Today, amateur explorers continue a search that started thousands of years ago around the Mediterranean, hoping for evidence that might turn out to be the lost city or island or continent of Atlantis. Mark Adams follows their leads and tells us what he found in his book, Meet Me in Atlantis. Mark, welcome back to Travel with Rick Steves. Thanks for having me. So, do you remember that Atlantis song by Donovan? <laughs> I do, I do. I know I came across the lyrics many times while working on this book. I bet you did. Some people search for Bigfoot and others are into <laughs> UFOs and a lot of people are looking for Atlantis. If somebody actually discovered Atlantis, what would it look like? Well, they would need to find two things. They would need to find an island that is sort of a circular shape because uh, the person who came up with the story of Atlantis, who was actually the philosopher Plato, arguably the greatest thinker in Western civilization, said it was a three-ringed city, and the second clue is it was located opposite the Pillars of Hercules. So you would have to find a three-ringed city opposite something that in antiquity, you know, before the birth of Christ, was known as the Pillars of Hercules. Now, the Pillars of Hercules are the Rock of Gibraltar and then a similar rock on the other side in Morocco, isn't that right? Well, you know, that's what I thought when I first started the book as well, but it turns out there are various pillars of Hercules throughout the Mediterranean, okay. such as the, the Straits of Messina. There are some spots, you know, at the southern end of the Peloponnesus in Greece that were called the pillars of Hercules at one time. Okay. But more or less, yes, the, the ones that mm-hmm. are between Spain and Morocco are the best known. You mentioned Plato. Now, Plato was the Greek philosopher several centuries before Christ. And he, yes. he's not a, a nut job. I mean, he was a very thoughtful guy. And he actually described this like he knew about it. Well, what's the whole rationale for that? Did he just dream it up or did he claim to actually know it? That's the weird part that really sucked me into this story. You know, Plato writes The Republic, which is his most famous book. And then his next book is a book called The Timaeus. The Timaeus is his attempt to use mathematical logic to explain the cosmos. 
And keeping in mind, this is almost 2,000 years before the first telescope is invented. So he's riffing on this. And in between those two, he comes up with this story of Atlantis, part one. After the Timaeus, after he's talking about, you know, the, the harmony of the spheres and, you know, the divine craftsmen and all this stuff, he comes back to the story again in a second dialogue. And this time he gives all this information that, you know, it almost sounds like a, a travel guidebook. You know, he describes so he the island. And what in two different books. Two different dialogues, yeah. He told it once, and then he came back to it again in the Timaeus and then in a dialogue called the Critias. You know, if he had just done it in the Timaeus, I think people would say, yeah, he made this up for, you know, right. whatever purpose or whatever. But he had an agenda here. He, he wanted people to know about this. Well, he definitely wanted people to think about it because, like I said, there is so much detail that, you know, it's almost like a treasure map. You can't help but start to think about, well, where could this have been? And because Plato is, is sort of an obscure writer, you have to decode it. He, he doesn't just come out and say things. He kind of hints at them. Oh, is that right? Yeah. I mean, either it's real and he had a legitimate agenda or he was just playing a prank on us and he's still laughing at us 2,500 years later. Or maybe it's somewhere in between. He had a famous statement in, I think it was the Republic, where he said, you know, there are things that are true and there are things that are not true, but there are also things uh. that are true and untrue. When we look at the famous picture of, what is it, Plato and Aristotle in the School of Athens by Raphael yep. at the Vatican, Plato's holding a book. Is that the Timaeus? He's holding the Timaeus, exactly. In the Middle Ages and shortly thereafter in the Renaissance, that was his most famous work, you know, because it was so influential on things like, you know, early Christian thought. So anybody who's been to the Vatican to see the Raphael rooms, they've looked at Plato holding the Timaeus, and in there he describes Atlantis. So this is kind of a, a treasure hunt for the for the ages, and Plato gave us some clues, and smart people have been searching for this uh, for centuries, literally. Yep. And your book lays out the four likely locations. Agadir, which is near the Atlantic coast in Morocco. Malta, which has it's got a lot of ancient uh, history and vanished population and all that sort of thing. Santorini, which is the lip of a, of a crater from a volcano, which is very thought-provoking. And southern Spain. Let's talk about each one of these just a little bit, why they would be a possible location for Atlantis. First, let's go down to Agadir, which is, uh, isn't that a resort now in the Atlantic coast in Morocco? Yeah, Agadir itself is a, is a resort very popular with French tourists. The old city was, in fact, destroyed in an earthquake and flood, sort of the same language that Plato used, in 1960. So it's all brand new, mm -hmm. you know, downtown, sort of a conch-shaped beach there. The reason why Agadir is a possibility is because it is outside the Pillars of Hercules if you put them at the Strait of Gibraltar. Mm -hmm. It does have that history of being destroyed by earthquakes and floods. Mm -hmm. And there are certain geological structures in the area that have that sort of ring shape that I mentioned earlier. Those three rings, concentric rings, that would be sort of the universal symbol of Atlantis, wouldn't it? That, that's sort of like the number one thing that an archaeologist would be looking for. So if you stumble onto that, you're getting warmer. <laughs> right, right, which is why people tend to focus on Santorini in Greece, because it has that sort of unique circular bowl shape, because it was a volcano right. that around 1600 BC blew sky high. I think it's the biggest known eruption, not in recorded history, but that we have evidence for, you know, pottery shards for and that yeah. sort of thing. And, you know, because it was so close to both Egypt and what I, I guess at that time was the Mycenaean Empire of Greece, there is thinking that Plato mentions that one of his ancestors went to Egypt, may have gotten this story from one of the temples down there. Hmm. There's thinking that perhaps this explosion was so big that 
the Egyptians saw it and there may have been refugees from Santorini and this was all brought together and put into the, some sort of oral history that was passed down to Plato. Ah, some sort of a, an amazing city that once existed and no longer was there. Exactly, exactly. The explosion that left Santorini just the lip of a crater in the Mediterranean, don't they think that was the, uh, well, could have wiped out the Minoan civilization on nearby Crete? Yeah, it would be the same thing. And then on Santorini, we've discovered this Akrotiri, this wonderful ancient ruined site that dates back to that second millennium BC, doesn't it? And the discovery of Akrotiri, which is phenomenal, and they've only uncovered like 3% of it, I believe. I met the, the head of archaeology down there, and I said, what, what do you expect to find in your lifetime? And he's like, you know, I've been digging here for 50 years. <laughs> My theories could all be disproven the day after I die, because there's so much here we just yeah. don't know. And it, that was actually found because uh, a guy named Mavor from the, the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute went to Santorini and we started getting people together saying, hey, you know, there are all these clues for Atlantis, there's Plato, and there's another fellow in Athens named Galanopoulos. And they sort of started pushing, and this famous Greek archaeologist named Marinatos came in and said, well, let's just, you know, start digging and see what we find. And they found Akrotiri. I think the ash from the volcano was like 50 feet deep or something, and they found a small passageway that led down into a room where all the walls were frescoes. It was just it was oh, one it's of the incredible. great discoveries of yeah. the 20th century. One way or another, uh, whether, you, whether you're looking for Atlantis or not, when you're in Santorini, you should be looking for <laughs> yeah. Akrotiri. It's really great. Our guest, Mark Adams, is the best-selling author of Turn Right at Machu Picchu and Mr. America, and you often see his byline in national magazines. His latest title is Meet Me in Atlantis, and it's now out in paperback. We have a link to Mark's website and his previous Travel with Rick Steves interview about his own expedition to Machu Picchu. You can find them with this week's show notes at ricksteves.com slash radio. Okay, so Mark, we got Santorini, we got Agadir in Morocco, and by the way, when you think of those pillars of Hercules in the ancient mindset, uh, the Mediterranean was the, the center of the world, really, and then you got to the Rock of Gibraltar, and from there you can see Morocco on the other side from Gibraltar, and then that right. was sort of the, the end of the known world, and, and anybody who goes exactly. beyond here, what was it, uh, dragons, beware the dragons are out there or something. Nec plus ultra was supposedly written on a rock at, at the Rock of Gibraltar, yeah. None further beyond. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Uh, what about Malta? Because Malta has all sorts of mystique about vanished population and ancient ruins. Well, Malta, you know, if you've been to Malta, you know that it is this sort of weird, mysterious place. It's a fortress, an island fortress that was built by the Knights of Malta, sort of a you know, mysterious group that goes back to the you know, 16th century as sort of the guard for the Pope and, and had this private army on this island. And it also has these temples that go back to you know, four or 5,000 years, you know, these extraordinary buildings that are, it's like Stonehenge, but it underwent cell division, you know, so it's like Stonehenge times four, Stonehenge times six. And like Stonehenge, they line up with the solstices and mm -hmm. lights, shoots down passages and does crazy things like that. And this goes, you know, way back. It's, it's the earliest known civilization in the Mediterranean, I believe. And that's amazing because this is a little island halfway between uh, Sicily and Africa, right? Right. A very small island. And at least once in antiquity, the entire island was wiped out, quite likely, by some sort of earthquake and flood. So that would line up. Earthquake that and flood. That would line up with Plato's story, exactly. Okay, so Agadir, I can buy Agadir. I could go to Santorini and think about Atlantis, and I could also be fascinated by the connections with Malta. I don't get the southern Spain connection because it's not an island. And uh, Why is southern Spain in the running for the location of Atlantis? The interesting thing is the, the word Plato uses for island is nisos, like Peloponnesos. 
it doesn't necessarily mean an island completely surrounded by water. It could mean like a peninsula. It could mean a piece of land that is mostly surrounded by water. Southern Spain, in an area called Doñana National Park, which is famous for bird watching, it floods half the year, so the birds come in there on their migration to Africa. It's quite beautiful. But it's filled with silt from the Guadalquivir River. Under that silt, it's generally believed there may be a lost city called Tartessus, which is mentioned by Aristotle. It's mentioned maybe in the Bible under a different name. Historians generally think that Tartessus exists, and that is the best location for it. Now, if Tartessus turns out to be the inspiration for Atlantis, if Atlantis is just Tartessus under another name, that would be the place. And I, I think that is, if not the most likely spot, it's, it's certainly there's none better. I think when we consider all of this, it's really important to remember that from a 21st century perspective, it's hard for us to adequately appreciate how advanced civilizations were 1,500 years before Christ. I mean, there was a lot going on that we just can't hardly fathom. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of it is underwater now because the water levels have continued to rise over the years. And, you know, a lot of it we just, we don't understand. It's like, you know, trying to look into a different dimension. In your book, uh, Mark, I thought it was funny when you mentioned anyone with a .edu email barely returns your questions because (laughs) there's so many nut jobs looking for Atlantis. Did you gain any respect for these people that are dedicating so much energy to finding this city? And uh, I did. I did. You know, and, you know, a lot of these people, I, I didn't talk to, well, I did talk to some just flat-out kooks. But, you know, the people I spoke to were just, you know, dedicated amateurs who really were interested in this, did all the reading, were skeptical. And eventually I I did get some, you know, real experts to talk to me, you know, the the people who were genuinely interested in, in, you know, finding out the truth. And, you know, secretly, off the record, you know, they're as interested as anybody else. Right. You know, but they, they can't, they can't, can't come out and can't, say it yeah, because they can't they, come out of the closet. They'll lose, <laughs> exactly. They'll, they'll lose their government funding if they come out and start talking about Atlantis. You know, but you get a couple of drinks into them and they're like... <laughs> that's, that's the trick. Get an archaeologist <laughs> drunk and then you can talk about it. <laughs> exactly. And a century ago, there was this sort of passion, this mania for lost great cities. You had Troy, yeah. Gnosis, Chichen Itza, the Absolutely. Valley of the Kings and Luxor, El Dorado, Machu Picchu, you name it. Uh, so it is. it does have a romantic allure to an archaeologist, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And if if anybody found Atlantis, I think the chances are slim that it's going to turn up in a form that could be recognized. But if they did find it, that would be the greatest archaeological discovery of all time. That would be exciting. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Mark Adams, and his book is Meet Me in Atlantis. Mark, it's fascinating to me that the only real hard evidence we have of this is the Greek philosopher Plato writing a little bit about it in two different books. Is that is that what all these Atlantologists are going by, is, is simply the writings of Plato, or is there any other ancient evidence? You know, there isn't much ancient evidence, which is why archaeologists tend to center on the idea that Santorini may have inspired Atlantis because there's actual pottery there, there's actual geological evidence there. You know, everything else is speculation based on, you know, ancient oral histories that were eventually written down and things like that. Anyone who writes about Atlantis, and there are all kinds of crazy ideas out there and half-crazy ideas, it's all traced back to Plato. Plato is the only original source for any talk about Atlantis. Hmm. You know, you mentioned the, the Donovan song. The lyrics to that song, which are kind of weird, 
and mm-hmm. Spacey, they all come out of a book written by a Minnesota congressman in the 1880s named Ignatius Donnelly, who sort of cherry-picked ancient history and, you know, weird pseudoscience theories and, and put together this 500-page book called Atlantis, the Antediluvian World. And that's the book that gives us the idea that Atlantis was an island on the bottom of the ocean. Plato never says that, but Donnelly decided that the Azores were actually were the tops of the mountains that had been the island of Atlantis. How he got that idea, I'm not sure. Now, there is a guy you write about named Tony O'Connell, who's the founder of Atlantopedia. Yes. Tony is, you know, that, that rare, wonderful thing that you come across as a writer, which is the dedicated amateur expert. Now, his Atlantopedia, is that like Wikipedia for people looking for Atlantis? It's kind of like that. It's online. It's atlantopedia.ie, and it's got thousands of entries. Anything that's ever been connected to Atlantis, from the craziest conspiracy UFO theory to, like, the most serious textual analysis of Plato in Greek, hmm. you will find on Tony's Atlantopedia. <laughs> you know, these guys are, are just regurgitating the same little tiny scraps of evidence to see what they can come up with. And it seems part of your quest is to follow their quest as well as to look for Atlantis. Well, it was. I mean, the interesting question you always ask these people is, why? Why are you looking for Atlantis? You know, because a lot of them devote a good chunk of their lives to it. And, you know, the only answer I could come up with was because I want to be the one to solve the mystery. Oh, it's like finding the source of the Nile or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I want to be the one. I want to have that feather in my cap. You know, and it's always some weird thing in their childhood Ah, that snags them. You know, I went and talked to this physicist in Germany named Reiner Kuhne who wrote a paper for the the archaeological magazine Antiquity, which is, you know, one of the most respected. And I asked him, I said, you know, Reiner, where did you get the idea to start looking into Atlantis? And he goes over the wall and he says, I have it right here. And I thought he was going to pull down some sort of physics journal. And he pulls something down and it's a copy of Scrooge McDuck Goes to Atlantis. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Great. I flew all the way here for this. (laughs) I'm in the middle of Braunschweig, Germany, because you found a copy of Scrooge McDuck Goes to Atlantis. But it's always some weird little thing like that that sets people off. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Mark Adams. His book is Meet Me in Atlantis. Mark, you can uh, wonder where is Atlantis and so on, but of the four places we talked about, just from a travel point of view, which one did you enjoy most uh, just to be at? Egadir, Malta, Santorini, or the south of Spain? You know, they're all very nice. I have to say, as a, as a place to just visit and relax, and if you could do it in a little bit shoulder season, off season, Santorini is mm-hmm. just, you know, mind-bogglingly beautiful. And it's um, mobbed with cruise ship travelers in the day, but early and late in the day, oh, it's just it's just so peaceful. That sunset from the top of the oh. crater when all the cruise ships are sailing away. And those blue roofs in Ia down at the end of the island, it's just, you know, if you can get there at a time when it's not so crowded, it is just spectacular. And then when the sun's just right after, a, like, four glasses of ouzo, if you squint your eyes just <laughs> right, hail Atlantis. Ah... All right, Mark Adams, thanks so much, and uh, fascinating work. Meet me in Atlantis. Thanks for having me. Hail Atlantis. Our next stop is well worth the short drive inland from the cruise ship port of Dubrovnik on the Adriatic. A few years ago, when I visited the city of Mostar, it became one of the most memorable experiences of my travel year on many levels. 
We'll find out what you can experience in the south of Bosnia-Herzegovina next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-RICK. The first time I ever visited Mostar was as a kid. It was like entering a time warp. Mostar's architecture reflects its Ottoman history, and there's a commotion of crosses and crescents demonstrating its historic role as a bridge between east and west. But Mostar was the most heavily bombed city during the Bosnian War of the 1990s, when Croatian forces destroyed the 16th century stone-arched bridge that spans the river that divides the town. The bridge became a sort of poster child for the ugliness of war. When it fell into the river, it felt as if Mostar had lost its soul. The bridge has since been rebuilt, and now it's protected as a World Heritage Site. To guide us into one of the Balkans' most interesting and complicated cities, we're joined now by my co-author of the Rick Steves Eastern Europe and Croatia and Slovenia guidebooks, Cameron Hewitt. Cameron visits the region every year for his research. Sanel Maric works as a tour guide for visitors to his home country of Bosnia-Herzegovina. He's also started an after-school program that helps the young people of Mostar learn to live and work together 25 years after the bloody conflict had their parents and grandparents literally killing each other. Cameron and Sunel join us now to explore what Mostar offers to visitors and how the city stands as a symbol of reconciliation. Sunel and Cameron, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Good to be here. Sunel, tell us a little bit about your work in a non-government organization uh, helping kids grow up um, comfortable in their environment. Well, the thing is, there's still, like in any other place, media does a lot of damage to everybody. So we are trying to remove them from everyday political life in a sense, show them through certain actions, you know, how things can be done in a more understanding and better way. So we have kids from all different backgrounds and Mainly, we are focusing on the kids with a lower social status because they are the most vulnerable ones. And we work with them, you know, we have workshops, we have sessions. I took kids from all around the Europe just to give them a glimpse that things are not as bad as it seems now. There's like all different colors, you know, in the spectrum, and it's not so black and white. And we're trying to prove them with our personal examples how can people with different backgrounds and different ethnical religious views work together and have a normal, decent life. So this tragic war in, in Bosnia was uh, a result of different uh, religious and ethnic groups that yeah. came to blows, and today their children are living side by side, and social media and the aggressive news mm-hmm. uh, keep them not empathizing with the other group. What's an example of how media could cause problems for a child in Bosnia? As soon as we start talk about, you know, in a sense, us and them whoever us and them was, there you have a problem. You know, we are not talking about kids, it's kids. And there's a lot of these things in media when you are starting, like, addressing certain politicians by Bosnian Croat or Bosnian Serb or Bosniak, raising identity, who is who. We like to call it like you are counting a blood cells of somebody, you know. Let me check your DNA. Are you a proper Bosnian or a Croat? So nobody cares, you know. It's whether you are a good person, are you good at your job, what you're doing, you know. These are the things that should matter. You know, when you're so up until now, the first question is, what is your group? And we've got to go beyond that, huh? Yeah. So what is your group? It's very mixed. I have all the kids around. I have Roma kids, gypsies. I have Muslims. I have Catholic. I have Eastern Orthodox. And we don't care. And they don't care what you are? No. Do they know? Of course, we talked about it. But that's the thing is, you need to sit and talk about, explain the situation and not make it so it doesn't 
sounds so frightening. It's and are okay. the parents are the parents uh, enthusiastic about this? Not so much, but we're getting them. You know, it's uh, when you do these things and when kids go home, it's very hard to explain to your kid why he or she cannot play with somebody just because... Because his uncle may have been killed by the father of the other kid and now they're having lunch together. Yeah. Difficult. Baggage. Yeah. And Good. we are trying to get rid of it. Do you feel like you're um, making progress in of your course. work? Of course. Of course. And Cameron Hewitt, you've been visiting Mostar for a long time, and you've seen lots of changes. Now, many, I think, would see the city as kind of a memorial to that tragic war that followed the breakup of Yugoslavia. How do you see the city? What does it represent to you? I think the first time I went, which was more than 10 years ago, that it did have that feeling. You still saw quite a lot of bomb damage on the main boulevard. Most of the buildings were still in ruins. And in the intervening years, as I keep going back, it's more becoming a symbol of reconciliation and recovery. And it's really remarkable. I think for a lot of folks, if you plop them down in the middle of Mostar and had them walk around, they might not even realize for a little while that this was a place where this terrible war was fought just 20 years ago. What are the attractions of Mostar beyond its war heritage? The best thing about Mostar is it's a really convenient first bite of Bosnia. I think Bosnia is a wonderful country. It's incredibly rich. There's a lot to see and do there. But Mostar is sort of Bosnian miniature. It's a really quick two, three-hour car ride from some of the big destinations on Croatia's coastline, Dubrovnik and Split. You can be in Mostar. A lot of people actually day trip into Mostar. So I think it's a great chance to kind of get a look at a little taste of Bosnia, see if you like it. And if you like it, there's a lot more to see to go a little, little bit deeper into the country. But if you're only going to Mostar, it's a very pleasant and very rewarding destination on itself. It actually feels, and it was, like a small Turkish town. I mean, when you think about it, most of the city in the, in the center where tourists spend their time was built during the Ottoman Empire. That famous bridge that you referred to was built by Suleiman the Magnificent, the famous Ottoman sultan. And uh, that's, I think, really striking for folks. If you're on the beaches in Croatia, you hop in a car, and in a few hours, you can be walking over this bridge on cobbled streets with kind of a bizarre feeling, like a Turkish bizarre feeling. Like you've gone to a little sample of Turkey right It's there. exactly right. Rather than traveling two days to get to Turkey, you can just travel in a few minutes. Can you there. say that's like the most Western outpost of Ottoman culture we could see easily in our travels? Yeah, I think absolutely. Certainly the most accessible. It's, mm-hmm. it's so quick and so easy. If anything, the other change I've seen recently, if there's any downside to Mostar, it is becoming pretty crowded. You're getting a lot, mm-hmm. a lot of people day tripping in from Croatia. So for that reason, I really recommend spending the night. It's a really a beautiful town after dark. I would think this would suffer as much as any day trip town where it could be really crowded in the middle of the day, but at night it takes on its character again because all of the tour masses and a lot of tour buses, too, I would imagine, are back down on the beach exactly, in Croatia. Right. We're getting to know Bosnia, looking at what you can enjoy in the town of Mostar right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guides are Cameron Hewitt, who co-authors the Rick Steves Guides to Eastern Europe, and Sanel Maric, who guides Americans around his home country and lives near Mostar. Sanel started an after-school program to bring together the young people of Mostar from its different ethnic and religious groups. Ruth's listening in from Walnut, California, and joins us on the line at 877-333-7425. Hi, Ruth. I understand you've recently been to Mostar. Hi, Rick. Thanks for taking my call. This past summer, we did go to Mostar. We drove, rented a car and drove over from Dubrovnik and spent the night. Like Cameron said, it's worth the time and effort to spend the night, and hopefully people have time in their itinerary to do that. It's well worth it. We stayed in a fantastic hotel, which is a lot less expensive than other places in Croatia, and the food is fantastic. You know, Ruth, just from a flat budget point of view and the return on your dollar, Dubrovnik, while great, is, is no budget destination compared to Mostar. And you could stay in nice hotels and eat high on the menu in Mostar and hire a private guide for what you'd spend to slum around Dubrovnik, I think. 
Exactly. And we did hire a private guide for a couple of hours to take us around so we could understand the history more. And that is also very worthwhile. Ruth, tell me about this for a moment, because I am the biggest fan of hiring a private guide, even when you're on your own. It seems like a a splurge kind of thing, a sort of a lavish expense, but it can be a good value. How did you find the guide, and uh, what was that like? We hired a guide from a tour book for two hours, and she walked us around of the city, just explaining the sites, explaining the culture, as well as the religion. And we walked into a mosque and uh, really got some background history, and that's what makes a private guide worthwhile. It's kind of a luxury to be able to ask all the questions and have a you know Bosnian coffee with her and uh, just really connect with the culture for a few hours. And we've done that in almost every single place we visit because we find it worthwhile. How did you do with the Bosnian coffee? Actually, I don't drink coffee, so I didn't try it. And I think we drank the beer. The beer. (laughs) Did you do some shopping? Because there's a beautiful shopping street. Cameron, what's that shopping street above the Uh, Coppersmith Street. It's a row of just fun little, it's like a Turkish bazaar kind of feel to it. You've got people who actually make hammered copper items. You've got all sorts of other kinds of souvenirs. You also have a lot of former Yugoslavia kitsch, which is kind of fun. If you're fascinated by the Yugoslav period, you've got kind of kitschy t-shirts, you've got old Yugoslav military kind of army surplus stuff. So there's a, a wide variety. You also have a lot of things you might think of as being more Turkish, like those uh, evil eyes, those white and blue oh, yeah. evil eyes are, are a big item along the Coppersmith Street. Ruth, what was your experience on that shopping street? Well, we ended up in more high-end store just because the exchange rate is so good. And we bought a lot of silver items. So we bought a, a silver Turkish hmm. coffee set. And Or it's actually um, Bosnian coffee. Any Bosnian oh, will make Bosnian. sure. <laughs> <laughs> they call it Turkish coffee in Turkey, but Bosnian coffee in Bosnia. <laughs> Was it something you had to bargain for the price, or how did they do that? Yes, we bargained and got a great price for it. So hmm. for nice. every, anything that you want to buy, I would definitely bargain oh, because right. the people are willing to bargain with you. Ruth, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you enjoyed Mostar. Thanks for your call. Thank you. And Laura's calling from Cudahy in Wisconsin. Hi, Laura. Hi. Yeah. Uh, my mother and I, back in 1987, we were visiting friends who lived in Metkovic and um, what's now Croatia, and they took us all over. And one of the places that they took us to was Mostar. And it was so incredibly different from any place else we had been. And, again, it was that Turkish kind of feeling. And going to the marketplace in the bazaar, I ended up buying a copper vase. And just walking over the arch bridge, it was just such a feeling of awe going over that bridge. That bridge is so great. And do you remember the boys that were jumping off the bridge? No, I don't. I I, I remember seeing that on your show, but I don't remember seeing that when we were there. Okay. When you do go there now, there's a good chance you'll have the boys, kind of like the daredevils from high school, jumping off that arch. Sanal, Uh can you explain, Sanal, this tradition? That tradition is as old as bridge itself, you know, from uh, mid-1500s. So they call themselves now Ikari, according to the Greek mythology. Icarus. 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 But we say Ikari. Ikari. And uh, they do have a very specific uh, way of jumping, which is widely spread hands. You know, you have to make... Very dramatic. Very dramatic. Kind of a big swan dive. Yeah. It is a swan dive. That's the perfect description. And you make a splash. You know, you have to make a big splash so you can spray all the pretty girls who are sitting around. That's, you know, (laughs) you are making a statement there. And this has been going on for generations. Yeah, for more than 400 years. For centuries. Yes. And Cameron, it's... 
it also, it's a little bit of employment for these boys. Yeah, it's really fun to be there as a traveler. You see, every so often, if you're sitting on top of the old bridge, you'll see a guy in swim trunks get up and start dancing around and pose like he's about to jump, and then another guy comes and passes the hat. And it can be a little frustrating because it'll take them 15, 20, 30 minutes to get the amount of money they're expecting. And finally, after they do all this teasing and getting up and looking like they're about to dive and then getting back down, finally they get the money they need. And sure enough, someone will actually get up and, and take the plunge. Next time you go, Laurie, you'll have to check out the uh, Swan Dive Boys. I will. I'm looking forward to going back to former Yugoslavia and all the different places that there are to see there. Oh, yeah. And Bosnia, in so many ways, is, is the hub of, of all that. Cameron, how tall is that bridge, would you bet, when they're jumping in? Boy, I forget. Actually, son, I'll probably know this. It's actually, uh, there is not accurate because of the level of the Neretva River okay. goes up and down. Mm-hmm. And it's a very tight area that you need to jump because the cliffs are underneath. Yes. So you have to be really a uh, very brave and good and, and good at it. And the other thing is the water is all mountain snowmelt and yeah, it's even very cold. yeah, even in the summertime when it, it can be 100 degrees outside, that water is ice cold. And very evocative for me, you stand on the bridge today and you look down in the river and you see the stones of the old bridge. Yep, they've uh, dredged up the old stones and have them right there in the riverbank. Yeah, they took as much as they could from mm-hmm. the original to make bridge, the new one. Incorporate ah. in, in, in the old one, and they use pretty much the same technique and the materials. And uh, one of the mm-hmm. fascinating things was made of egg whites. Egg and, whites? Yes. And uh, a little bit of goat's hair. This is how they make this the mass gluing the stone together. Oh, the, mo- the mortar <laughs> is the traditional mortar, yeah. even in today's yeah. rebuild. Yeah. Cameron, did you see that movie uh, that just had a huge impact on me? There's a little memorial room next to the bridge. And I was in there watching, during the war, the bomb artillery was hitting that bridge and hitting, and it wouldn't fall. And I was sitting there with a bunch of uh, former Yugoslavians. And finally, the old black and white, you know, rough uh, video shows the bridge giving way and crumbling into the river. And it was dramatic to watch it, but what was really dramatic was to be with 50 people from the former Yugoslavia and hear the gasp and the sadness when that bridge finally went down. So now what does that bridge mean to you who lives there? It felt like you have lost a member of your family. Because for a lot of us, you know, that was a symbol that we so easily identified. You know, this was something that we were so proud of. You know, something that was built so many years ago and stood there bringing people together. Symbolizing bringing people together, a bridge, not a wall. And all of a sudden, it wasn't even, it didn't have any military significance. Right. Why would you go and bomb that bridge? Tragic. So now it's a very complicated thing, but who bombed the bridge? What side wanted it to be coming down? What we have now is uh, evidence. It was done by the part of the Croatian paramilitia that operated in that area. Okay, and they were bombing from a a nearby hilltop, just lobbing bombs down on there. If you study that before your trip, it's a very powerful, powerful experience. But as Cameron said, the big news is when you go there today, it's kind of a celebration. It's a celebration of Bosnian life. You can go there and, if you choose, not even think about the war and be surrounded just by a thriving culture. We're getting to know the city of Mostar in southern Bosnia-Herzegovina right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guides are Sanel Maric and Cameron Hewitt. Let's just finish our discussion with just a suggestion as travelers how you can be in Bosnia when you go to Mostar. Cameron, what's a good experience you could have that would kind of cap your your time in Mostar? One of my favorite things to do anytime in Bosnia is to have something we've discussed a couple times already, a nice, uh, slow Bosnian coffee. And if you have a Bosnian friend or if you hire a local guide, as some people choose to do, they can explain to you that in Bosnian culture, you don't drink coffee just to quickly caffeinate and move on. 
the reason they have this unfiltered Bosnian coffee is that it kind of forces you to take time. If you drink it too fast, you get a mouthful of coffee grounds, right? That'll teach you. Yep. And so uh, <laughs> Bosnians use coffee as an opportunity to slow down, enjoy the conversation, watch life go by. And so I love to find a cafe with a view of that beautiful old bridge. That, mm-hmm. That's such an inspirational site to see it all rebuilt. And uh, hopefully with a local friend, sit there and just enjoy slowly nursing a Bosnian coffee and thinking about this wonderful culture that exists so close to big tourist destinations that Mm -hmm. are so different on the Croatian coastline. It is remarkable to think that that could exist even so close to all the cruise industry just a couple hours away. And Sanel, when I was in Mostar, I'll never forget the fun, youthful energy on the square that was designed for uh, the embarkation point for pilgrimages, I believe. Mm Mm-hmm. Take us to that square, and what would we find there uh, in the cool early hours of the evening? Well, we're outdoorsy people. I think 90% of our life happens literally outside. You know, talking to your neighbors, which is great. You know all these people, and we just sit there. Somebody brings a coffee or tree or pie, which is a great snack pie. back home. Pie. We, we love pies. We eat pies all the time. Bosnian this is our pie. fast food. What kind of pie? <laughs> Depends. Whether it's a meat, you know. Oh, a savory cheese, pie. Savory pie. And sweet pies are not that big of a deal. Okay, as we're talking much a, as, like, of, a, of, yeah. like the equivalent of the Italian pizza. There you go. Yeah. So um, you just sit there, chill, because uh, most of our summer nights can be really, really tropical. Mm-hmm. And you want to be outside. And all the, the young people are out yeah. showing off and uh, having a good time. The old people are there remembering and with their lifetime and friends. today I had a very interesting experience. Uh, actually, yesterday we went with some friends, visited the graves of, of Bruce Lee. Here in Seattle. Connection, yeah, with that, the youth of Mostar put a full-size statue of Bruce Lee in the main park. <laughs> in Mostar? In Mostar. Because this is their way to say to everybody, you know, we share his values. And what are Bruce Lee's values? I mean, he was a very good man. You know, this is how we are perceived through all of the movies. You know, he had honor. You know, he was honest. He fought for what he believed. He wasn't poisoned by the little things of life, you know. Huh. So they, it was kind of a, their way of sending a message to our government, you know. So you Bruce Lee celebrated in Bosnia that the very people much. are strong. The people have the truth very on their much. side. And you can celebrate that on the big square. You're going to see a very beautiful bronze statue of Bruce Lee. Mostar. Yeah. Son of marriage. Cameron here. Thanks so much for sharing your expertise Thank on you Mostar. For us. Thank you very much. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan Wolner. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York for studio help this week. You can listen again whenever you like and find out about our guests in the notes for each week's show. Rick also has an app for your mobile phone with self-guided walking tours to many of Europe's most popular destinations. You'll find it all in the radio pages of ricksteves.com. We'll see you next week for more travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. Europe Through the Back Door teaches the skills of smart travel. Travel as a political act adds meaning to the journey. And Rick Steves' best-selling country, city, and pocket guidebooks cover every corner of Europe. To learn more, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.